I would like to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on Jar Jar Wurrung country. We pay our respects to the traditional custodians of this land and acknowledge leaders and elders past, present and future. Thank you. Hello and welcome. You are listening to Soul Care Bendigo's podcast, Naked. I'm your host, Gail Wilson, and together we will go through a series of storytelling, conversations and strategies about leaning into life's lessons, the good, the bad and the downright painful, as we journey back to ourselves and back to our intuition. Through the lens of witness and reflection, we will work our way through a series of raw, stripped-back, relatable topics and personal experiences. There will be laughter, tears and the occasional swear word because, hey, life is too short to hold back. So come along with me on this journey and let's talk life. You can follow and subscribe to Soul Care Bendigo's Naked to get notifications for upcoming episodes as they land in your space. So lend me your ears and your heart as we go through this journey together. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Soul Care Bendigo's podcast, Naked. This is me, Gail, and today I'm joined by my sister, Crystal. Hello. We're doing an episode today. As mentioned at the start, we talk about the good, the bad, and the downright painful, and today's got all of it. It's got all three. It's the triple whammy for us. And we really want to speak and share this story. It does have some difficult parts in it to listen to. And I really am mindful to make sure that you are aware of this in case you're listening in the car with kiddies or in case you might have had your own experiences and this brings up stuff for you, which we know now to be the term triggering that we hear so much of in society. So let me give you the brief rundown, folks. We're going to be talking about early childhood trauma through sexual abuse. We're going to be talking about medical conditions. We're going to be talking about stripping. We're going to be talking about drug use. We're going to be talking about criminal activity, potential imprisonment. Then we're going to go on to the light. We're going to go on to recovery. We're going to go on to healing. We're going to go on to second chances. Basically, you're getting an episode of what was that Australian TV show? What was that one? Blue Healers? No. (laughs) With Roberto. Well, Underbelly. Underbelly. We're taking it a little Underbelly style here. It's going to be dark there, okay? (laughs) And we laugh because now we can laugh because now we... It's a trauma response. It's also that this is what healing does. This is when you take away shame and judgment and ridicule, we can actually reflect on someone's life and all the chapters in their book without judgment, which is where we're at now, thank fuck. So let me introduce you to my big little sister, Krista. Hello. Welcome and thank you for coming on the podcast and being brave today. That's okay. Thank you for having me and letting me share my story. And that's all it is, isn't it? It's the storytelling and it's the part of recognising all the parts in our book and how they actually do service even when they're so painful and ugly and horrible. There is light at the end of the tunnel and that's the important part of why I feel like this needs to be an open dialogue for lots of people to hear if they're in any of these circumstances. There's hope. So tell us, you're finishing your end of your 30s, your 40 next week. Oh, yes. a, at some point, we didn't even know that you'd make it. I know. What an honour to get to 40. Yes, it is. That's right. I'm excited about this. Well, you have a fabulous dress, fabulous dessert. We're having a fabulous party. But it wasn't always this fabulous. No. And it's taken us a long time to get here. And to be honest, it's probably taken us 80 years of lessons to get to this 40 years of life. Mm-hmm. 
but we're here and what we want to celebrate and acknowledge is the journey along the way. So let's go back. How far? Well, we grew up in the same house in a little weatherboard house with the same parents. Mm -hmm. And we've spoken that we thought that we had the same childhood. Well, I did because, again, I live in my little gay or bubble. But amongst all of the yappy trips, <laughs> watching Labyrinth 10,000 times. Good movie. Beverly Hills 90210. Not so good. <laughs> you unfortunately had a relative who had decided to choose you to, well, sexually assault quietly when no one else was watching. Yeah. So we had the same childhood. We even shared the same bedroom, same parents, lived in the same house, but, yeah, completely different upbringings and childhood. Yeah. Yeah. So then what we're doing is we're setting up a picture for you of sometimes why people choose drugs because we live in a society where a good 50% of us still say harsh things like, well, they made the choice when they were holding that needle in their arm, they made the choice, or when they decided to smoke the bong, they made the choice. And yes, probably for the first one or two or three times, they did make the choice. But after that, it wasn't a choice anymore. Well, you and I have spoken at length that a happy, healthy, loving, self-loving person does not do that stuff. No. That it's often a last resort as a healing strategy yeah. to forget. Forget. Bypass. Yep. Stop feeling. Yeah. Numbing. Yeah. So, as I said, Crystal had this horrible, I'm not even going to call him a human, he's a monster, who ruined our family in your childhood. Mm -hmm. So, we also have a, a history of mental health issues in our family and conditions, I should say, and it's all the juicy ones, you know, yeah. like the bipolar and the personality disorder. There's a lot of colourful menagerie of challenges. We're very interesting people. <laughs> We're very interesting people. <laughs> and it comes down to personality for why a predator chooses their victim. Yes. And I was always a very, I don't know why, but I was always very outspoken. I'm the second born. I like rules. I like structure. And then you were the youngest in our family of our siblings. You were quieter. You were more discreet in everything that you did. And so you were an easy target. So we have this, folks. This is the picture that we have. We have mental health through our family. Now we have a little girl who's facing a very lonely experience of sexual assault, a third sibling who often can't feel like they can keep up with everybody else. And all of a sudden, life feels hard, really hard. And the other thing with human nature is people will handpick who they choose to offer drugs to. That's the other thing. Like I've never been in a nightclub who, where people have tried to sell me a drug. You know, I've had friends who have maybe offered me something over the years, but I've never like had a random stranger go, oh, that looks like someone I could sell something to. Yeah. And there, there is obvious signs. So what we want to do when we're talking to Crystal today, and she's going to guide us through, is maybe what to look for in your children to know that something is up. Maybe what to look through and language to have with them to protect them in the relationships they hold with everyone around them. The other thing to remember too is that what happened with Crystal, her assaults, her drug use, is happening in families around Australia. Not every single one of them, but these insidious diseases and behaviours are not based on socioeconomic. No. They are not based on whether your parents are together or separated or divorced or whatever. 
they're just breeding silently under the water in the depths of the darkest, murky water you can ever experience. So we went to the same high school. Mm-hmm. We were to the same primary school, same high school, and through the primary school years you started having seizures. Yes. And you were diagnosed with epilepsy mm-hmm. and medicated. Yes. Back then in the mid-90s, the medication for epilepsy was a bit addictive. Yes. And all of a sudden you're learning mechanisms to cope with things based on medicinal use. Yes. So tell us it was more the ADHD medicine. Yeah, okay. Because they also put me on that because they thought my outbursts had something to do with that, which I do have ADHD, that's common knowledge, the cocktail that's happening in my brain. Yeah. But, yeah, they put you on such really harsh, addictive amphetamines. Mm. They are amphetamines. That's what they are. And then also become an escaping mechanism. So the regulation tools that we, you know, we, we're trying to use to control our brains has side offences. I don't think anything you do to the body has a side effect you know, a consequence or a side effect. Let's start with when you started noticing that you allowed people into your life that weren't good people. Because of what I was going through, I was always very shy and I guess somewhat aggressive with people trying to get close to me. No shit, Sherlock. Yeah. (laughs) That was my defense mechanism. Thank you. So I didn't have many friends growing up. Like I had a couple, but you know, half the time they were being friends with me just to you know, dumped me again and that was kind of like my my background. My friends growing up were animals. Yeah. Your friends were like fucking legit scary. Yeah, legit scary. And now I actually feel heartache for those kids because there were probably other kids going through really dark shit. So even like my best friend in high school, I look back at that now and realise that she was the biggest bully of the school and she just bullied me to be her best friend. Where now I'm just like, wow, I can't believe I was friends with so many years. Mm. And that's that's self-worth, which was a part of what he took away. Yeah. And so I just, I just, that's how I was always treated. That's how I get treated. That's what love is. This is the fascinating thing with our brains, though, is that our brain will set us up for repeat behaviours because even if it's the worst behaviour, it's predictable and predictability is safe for our brains. Yeah. So it'll choose the same partners that are often have that temper. It'll choose the same <laughs> yeah. jobs that end the same way. Yeah. It'll choose relationships with our friendships that are, you know, let's say the word toxic. Not because it serves us any well. We're not asking our brain to do anything differently. So then it doesn't have to. That's all it knows. Yeah, that's all it knows and it's predictable and it can just stay on that flat line. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so can we talk about, again, so you noticed in high school looking back, but at the time you thought they were worthy of your friendship? At the time I thought, oh, my God, I've got that best friend that you see in the movies and that my sister's got and my brother had with his mate. But, yeah, I was like, okay, that I belong somewhere. But it wasn't a belonging. It was a control thing, which mm. it always was for me of being controlled. And then was it those same friends that first introduced you to drugs? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Because that was so in their household? Was that a common thing? No, no. Alcohol was in their household. Alcohol was a big thing, so they'd get our drinks and do everything like that. Also, yeah, so drugs were. It was their boyfriends. Okay. That introduced it. And that's how that started out. It started small, like with every kid. It starts with marijuana mm-hmm. and then it creeps up to pills and then it creeps up to powders and then it creeps up to smoking stuff and crystal form and then it creeps up to liquids and it just keeps building and building and building until you've tried everything that there was to try. 
Yeah. So do you think the body becomes resilient or do you think you're just looking like nothing works the way it used to work? Or do you think it becomes a curiosity how far you can push yourself or how far you can run from the trauma? Yeah, it was more the fact of what was going to make the feelings and the thoughts in my brain and the feelings I had in my heart for myself disappear mm-hmm. and what was actually going to actually make me feel good, Yeah, which I didn't generally feel good. Like no. I was never really happy. I was never really accepted in any anywhere or I was always just this little outcast. So to give me something that made me feel good, gave me confidence, gave me motivation, all this, in my brain it was doing that. On the outside, to people looking in, I was a hot mess. Mm. But in my brain, I was like, look at me, I'm confident, I'm doing things, people like me, and yeah, and that's how it kind of grew. So the addiction is not just the chemical, it's also the way people respond and the connection you gain from it. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so you got a job. I do. Yeah. I was fine. Yeah. No, no, no. Back then, I did. Yeah, I did. Not again. The same people found you. The same people with their own demons. The yeah. same people who can manipulate control. I got a job, and they picked a couple of girls from that job. These people come in. They didn't work there or have anything affiliated with the job, but mm-hmm. they knew a couple of people who worked there, and people introduced people to people. And yeah, these people picked three of us, and we were pretty much brought into underworld stripping and offered, you know, this money and this lifestyle and it was all this fabulous like the dream and I was like, oh, hell yeah, I'll take that and, you know, I could buy myself nice things, so, you know, bags, shoes, jewellery. And we've often laughed about this because we had the same job in the same takeaway store and I sure as shit was not trained in the handbags that you were texting. <laughs> and I sure as shit did not have the same fancy heels that you had. But again, as a family, we were none the wiser. We would have, no, have had no idea. I think probably I didn't really see a change in you because the thing that's always for us hidden your drug use was that you always had a life outside of our family life, meaning that there was people that you constantly hung around with that we didn't know. Mm-hmm. So it was like you lived two totally different existences mm-hmm. that we weren't aware of. Yeah, one person with them and another person with you. Yes, yeah. And it wasn't until you were working in another store in your 20s that my friend was working with and she's like, ah, oh, your sister's got far darker shit going on than you realise. And then, and that was such a happy store. <laughs> And then, you know, the other thing was I start getting people stop me, you know, the week after a weekend and said, shit, I saw your sister out on the weekend. So I started getting the public was starting to notice your change. So the either desire to hide it was gone because now you're in with people that you thought you were untouchable. Yeah, yeah, that that's that's what it was. Yeah. So you delve into this underworld crime, you start the stripping. And there's people who want you, you're desired, yeah, and have all these luxury items that we didn't have growing up in our family. And you see the story start to build and the seduction of this darker life. Mm-hmm. So when did it go from the glamour to the gutter? So pretty much realising, I don't know, how do I put this, that the best part of me, it's what I thought the best part of me, what people wanted the most mm-hmm. growing up with, you know, that family member and everything like that, was the sexuality in me. Mm-hmm. So it was bringing that out and showing that and showing my body, which I always thought I had a horrible body. Look at back now, I had an incredible rig, mm-hmm. incredible rig. 
you know, the, showing the body off, being more confident. But to do that, I needed more stuff to keep me up on that platform, mm-hmm. to keep me up on that gravel of having the confidence, looking good, being able to, you know, sleep with people and do that, mm-hmm. giving myself sexually to people. Okay. So was this paid for? Not in the form of formal prostitution. Yes. No. I did that once and I cried the whole time and the guy just left money on the bench. He's like, you leave now. <laughs> so that was a bother. The old worst prostitute. <laughs> Yeah, thank God. <laughs> but if it came from someone who was in power, mm-hmm. someone who, well, they were all in power. So, yeah, I'd give my body over to them because it was nice to be in that circle, in that protected, validated, wanted, owned mm-hmm. is a perfect way to describe, be owned by someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they can have it. Yeah. Back then, now it's absolutely not. But, you know, mm-hmm. in that time, yeah, it was nice to be wanted and to be controlled because that's what I was used to and that's, mm. and being controlled at the highest level mm-hmm. was just like, wow, I've made it. Yeah, yeah. But to keep that persona up there, I'd have to take more stuff. Because you weren't naturally that way. So you're no. naturally, you're an introvert. I am such an introvert. I'm a house baby. Yeah. And you're naturally anxious. Yes. Yes. So <laughs> I'm naturally awkward. <laughs> <laughs> and there's the mental health and yeah so it's a it's a colorful and we're not painting them but it's really super friendly <laughs> and that's another thing your sense of humor hid things for a very long time because yeah. you never knew what you're fucking joking about and what was serious yeah yeah and everyone just laughed even if it was the awkward laugh of, oh that's a bit sick it still was a laugh that's how i cope yes yeah the mechanism okay so when did it start getting bad? You know, when did you – so you then started dating another boy mm-hmm. who you ended up getting engaged to mm-hmm. and you'd gone through the pills to help you in the cocaine to help you get mm-hmm. through stripping, mm-hmm. build your confidence, mm-hmm. and you were paid for this. So one thing paid for the other, yeah. basically. Yeah. So you, it wasn't really ever an entrepreneurial – No. No. <laughs> no. So you went, yeah. So it was just one thing. So that, And that's the trap of the circle that yeah. it never ends. Yeah. Just always chasing your tail. Yeah. So then you got together with a guy who seemed perfectly lovely. I did. And he was a good guy. Mm-hmm. And he was a drug user. He was. Of a much darker product. He was. But he also did not have an addictive personality. He did not. So he was able to use this drug, yep. but then not crave it. Yep. And he'd go to sleep straight afterwards. Still baffles my brain. But then you started this drug. And again, with this mental health history, trauma, Addictive personality. A, a very addictive personality. Yes. All of a sudden, you try what for the first time? I try ice for the first time. Okay. And what year do you think this was? Oh, I still remember the night. I've still got photos from the night because we were having a party at my house for a dress. It was so fabulous, this dress I brought, that it deserved its own party. Mm-hmm. So we're having a cocktail party at my house. All these people are out. Decked a house in ivy. It was candles. It was It was lush. And everyone was going in the room and his group of friends, and there was about 15, 20 of them, were going into my room and just isolating in there because we'd been together by this part by six months. Mm-hmm. And first time I saw it mm-hmm. and he brought out this glass pipe, mm-hmm. I thought it was the dirtiest, dankest thing I've ever seen. I'm like, that is. you had drug standards up until like, I did. I was like, yeah. You were deluded enough to think that you were a glamorous drug user. Yeah. And I'm like, what is that filth? And he's like, no, just try it. And I'm like, yeah, no, thanks. No, clean it. Not going to try that. That looks like some American crack. Mm. No, thank you. And he's like, well, it's no bit better than you taking a line up your nose. I'm like, 
my stuff's clean. That looks, that's disgusting. Like that's dirty. Clean. That's a shared product. Yeah. yeah. Like they're communal. They're yeah. communal around this dirty, black, grimy. Mm. Yeah. I was like, nope, no, thank you. But then after spending every weekend together, and of course, as he does, the first, he moves in after the first week. So as they always do. And because uh, you love love. I do love love. I'm a sucker for love. I'm not now. Love can go. But, you know, back then I was a sucker for love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everyone was going, like, isolating this room. I'm like, you know, I have got this fabulous dress on. We've got all this there, but stop isolating the room. So I asked one of his friends, Mm -hmm. just to be included, I'm like, can you show me how to do that dirty thing? And then his friend brought out his. And I'm like, yours is clean. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, he goes, that is is." Bill, he goes, I'll show you. Come and I'll show you. Mm-hmm. So he took me into another room and showed me how to use it. Mm-hmm. And then I went and joined the other group in the room and they were all didn't they doing it together. And I've got photos from the start of the night of us looking amazing, glamorous, beautiful. And then I've got the photos from the other night where the beautiful dresses, they're often on the floor, mm-hmm. uh, wearing some fluoro crap. I've chewed half my face off, looks like I'm chewing my face off. My eyes are like dinner plates. Uh, my jaw was, jaw was aligned. It was a mess, and that was the first time I did it. But and then I didn't sleep for like three days after that. They do say that with a drug addict, that most of us have you know three hundred sixty-five days in a year, nights <laughs> in a year. But a drug will have around two hundred and fifty nights in a year, mm. maybe even less, depending yeah. on how quickly they, and often they use. Which is hard to fathom that one human could be getting like more than half, you know, more than a third of the sleep in a year that someone else is based on chemical enhancement. Yeah. Okay, so you use it mm-hmm. and and then it was I enjoyed it. Not only did we have the party that night, didn't sleep all night. Everyone else left for the party. We had amazing sex all night. Mm-hmm. And then the next day I was like, all right, let's go clean the garden. Let's go do the gardens. Let's clean up the house. Let's do this. Let's do and the house was all pristine the next morning and it was just so so much done and so much accomplished and I felt great and yeah, and it was and someone with ADHD, I could see how that could be. It was great. Because you don't yeah. leave a task build up, which is a really common thing with ADHD that they'll leave laundry really backing up yeah. or dishes really backing up because all of a sudden the task is too overwhelming. So if you've taken this product. Everything was done. Everything was done. The house was pristine. So you're done. the person you want to be. Yes. Yeah, nailed it. Mm. And then, of course, what comes up comes down. But then I got to sleep for like a day straight. And, you know, me, I'm like a house cat. I love sleep. Yeah. So that was great for me as well. And then it was started being every weekend. Okay. And then every weekend. And this is when we noticed that you'd stop turning up to family roasts. Yeah. Sunday roast went out the window. Yeah. Because I couldn't let mum and dad see me like that. When you say you couldn't let mum and dad see you like that, did you know that you were declining or you were just like, fuck it, I've got something funner to do? I just out of, res- out of respect, I didn't, in case I was jittery or in case, you know, my eyes were, I was chewing, chewing the inside of my mouth. I didn't want mum and dad to see that. Yeah, and I'm a detective. You are like Snoopy, the master detective here. <laughs> so I didn't want that coming across because mm. you'd straight away be like, Crystal, what's wrong with you? What's going on with your mouth? What's happening over there? Crystal, mom, what's going on with Crystal? That is very much how I think. And a very much accurate representation <laughs> of Miss Wilson and Mrs. Wilson. And so, you know, I wasn't doing that. And then well, she got the bandwagon, then the brother would get on the bandwagon and he'd just start poking just for the fun of poking at me. Mm-hmm. And it just, yeah, I will politely decline roast this week. Thanks, Mum. Okay, so what happened? When did it start getting bad? When I started doing it in the storeroom of the business I was managing. Because you, okay, so this is because 
you felt like you could no longer get through the simple day-to-day tasks. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So your ADHD, do you think, got worse? I got so, like, I didn't want to go to work when I wasn't on So your yet. anxiety was 10 yeah. times worse. Yeah. Your ADHD yeah. was worse. So all of a sudden, all the things that you kind of were managing in life to a certain level yes. were now totally um, uncontrollable. Uncontrollable. Yeah. Right. Okay. And so you started using during the day when he wasn't around and offering mm-hmm. it. So it wasn't at parties any longer. No. It was just to get through a day. Yeah. Yeah. So in the storeroom of a very well-known franchise. Yeah. Mm. In Bendigo, um, staff were noticing that you were disappearing to do this? I think so. That I think this is when my friend was yeah. like, something's up with your sister. Yeah. I don't think her guy's a good guy. And it wasn't that he wasn't a good guy. It was just that he could do something. As an adult, he could consent to make a choice for himself, but he could also walk away from it. Yeah. And here we have trauma responses, mm-hmm. medical conditions, yeah, how he didn't realise no, the bag that he had just opened. And I wonder if the he took it all. I wonder if he'd taken it all back. He moved me out of town, remember? Mm. The opportunity came that we could move to a small country town where you couldn't get anything. Yeah. And to try and help you sober up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, once he realised that I'd gone from ice to that I was experimenting with smoking heroin okay. in dingy alleyways in Melbourne with a friend. Mm-hmm. He was like, no, we got a bit of trouble here. Yeah. We did. We moved to the country. We moved to abortion. We were doing great. I got clean again and everything was going well. We were occasionally still using. Occasionally his friends would come up on the weekends, Mm -hmm. but not every weekend. Mm -hmm. But then it started getting to a stage where he was missing the lifestyle. And then we started coming back to Betty every weekend. So were you unraveling through this sobriety? No, I was doing great. My yeah. hair was back, my skin was back, I'd put weight back on. Mm-hmm. I was doing really well. But then I started picking up the weekend. And then the person also at that communal ha- the house with were renovating started picking up things were going wrong. Right. Um, so then we moved into the actual town of this country place. And once we had our own house, then people were coming to stay again. Yeah. So maybe he liked it a bit more than he realised. Yeah. And the social, the connection with people, you know, maybe he felt important. Yeah. And everyone coming to him, he felt like he had company. And yeah. It was and, he, and he was, he was the one who earned the big money. Yeah. So like every weekend someone would be hitting him up for a loan or doing this okay. and, you know, it was just, he was the power player. Yeah. But yeah. So then it started just spiraling. And then we broke up after one, after, no, it was building up that we were going to break up. But it all also came out then about the line station as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, he was with me when we drove back to Benigo and sat mum and dad on the front porch Yeah, of that beautiful weatherboard and said to them, this is what's happening. This is what needs to be done. Because getting sober in that country town, all my nightmares of all that yes. got stronger yeah. and stronger and stronger when I'm realising, wait a minute, this is true. Mm. I try to... I'm this off that it wasn't for 15 years. Yeah. And I'm like, no, they're just dreams. No, that can't be right. Mm. And like, I'm like, no, I can't ignore this anymore. This is all what was happening. And I remember it all vividly because I'd always drunk from a very young age as well. So like, I got to a stage where I didn't realize I was an alcohol actually until I went to rehab, but I drink every night. I have a bowl of bubble in my bedroom that I drank every night when I was still living at home. Mm. I'd always kind of numb myself at night and then when I moved away from everything and I was getting, I'm like, wait a minute, no, there was a reason I was numbing myself. There was a reason this was all happening. So this is when the fog starts to part. Yeah. And now you're left with the demons. Yeah. No coping mechanism and no mental health help. 
in this small town. Yeah. Okay. So you share with mum and dad. Yep. They're heartbroken. Yeah. Angry. Yeah. Grease. Dad was the worst. He felt like he failed me so badly. He's like, how did I not see this? How did I let this happen? I'm like, you didn't. Mm. You didn't let this happen. Like, and yeah, I was, you didn't let me down. But his protector and the strong man that he was was devastated by this. And mum was, I just still remember her, she was in utter shock. She was just in shock. And I think one just, this is someone she trusted and loved to, to do this to someone. Yeah, she was just like a ghost. And then you, so your partner and you broke up. The engagement was over. Yes. So then you had no one to keep you accountable. No. So then she got worse. She got really worse. I contacted and I had to get out of that country town. I was going absolutely psycho by myself. Mm-hmm. Plus I couldn't work because I would broken my hand. I was in full cast after the breakup, mm-hmm. me being me. So anger? Yes. Right. Anger, door frame, hand, smack, crunch. Right. So then I had to come back to Bendigo. I contacted an ex mm-hmm. and I went and stayed with him. And when I got back to staying with him, he was full in the depths of ice, mm-hmm. like fully. And I'd gotten out of it, but I'm like, I can be strong. I could do this. And, but then, it's a safe fact, I didn't want to be strong. Mm-hmm. I was devastated and I was heartbroken. As I said, like, this is the first person who actually broke up with me. Mm-hmm. So this crushed me and I wasn't expecting it. So then being thrown back into that lifestyle, he was fully engaged with numerous dealers around town and then it got to a situation where he just I uh, got too much for him to handle, just my sadness, set me off with this dealer one day and that's when things got really dark. What does really dark look like? Like for the movies? I lost all my, I lost who I was. I didn't have an identity anymore. I now work for these people. These people have full control over me. I had to stay at their house. Dad and mum were trying to get me out of there as much as they could, but these people would just walk into mum and dad's house. Mm. It would really take it over my personality and who I was as a person. Your moral code. Yeah, like I was being fed it to the fact of like these people, this is where uh, like, IV used to come into it. These people were literally injecting me with needles. I lost all my moral compass of who I was. And you consented to that at the time? I did at the time, yes. Yes. Not the first one. The first one I definitely did not consent to. Okay. (laughs) But after that, it was just like, well, it isn't worth fighting for and it gives you a good high and it's instant, takes you to a whole new level. And What do you mean by that? Do you mean your dreams in your sleep mode or do you mean your superpower? My high. Okay. Yeah. Because smoking it, there was like, oh, it's not much getting into me anymore. It's just not having the same effect. And then they are um, like getting angry of how much I was smoking and like for what it took because that was costing them money. Mm. So then um, they held me down at one point and put a needle in my arm and I'm like, no, no, fighting it as you do. And then the high after was just like, oh, okay, all right, I get it. And then after that, I didn't fight it because I got trouble fighting the first time. So I just let them do it. And then it was to the stage I was asking them to do it for me. And so this new level of control over you and this new euphoric experience you were having, this is when really bad criminal stuff came in as well. Again, because that moral code is totally obliviated. Gone. 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 I was gone. The person I was, like, I was, you can't even say autopilot because the autopilot for Crystal wasn't even on. Yeah. It was this new. Demonic? Yeah, it was almost demonic. Mm. 
the person I've become. Like some of the things that we did and I did, I can't even fathom that was me now. Well, even the strength to do some of the things you did, yeah. the physical strength, and I suppose that's the superpower that it gives you. Oh, yeah, I was strong. And that's, I think, when we look at drug use and when we look at the drugs that people choose, they all have their different reasons for why they choose that drug, mm-hmm. whether it's escapism, whether it's productivity, whether it's – because it, you've got to remember this, folks, this is all still pharmaceutical. So it's all still comes from a product that was already made by man and now it's just been – used in its incorrect way. Yeah, be tweaked and added some more things to it. Yeah. And this is the scary stuff, which we all know that we don't know what's in each of the products and so we don't know what it's going to do to us. The other thing too is that your body now is so malnutritioned, so you are so thin. Yeah. And I think this is also when society became even more aware of the drug wave had changed. So I think now we're up to, as I said, we've had the 2000s to 2005 where crystal meth is kind of sweeping through a lot of towns, actually through the world, when we'd had the worst drug, which probably was known as heroin through the 80s and earlier. And 90s, yeah. Yeah, people did that quietly in their own places and it wasn't really in society. It was a very isolated dream state drug. Mm-hmm. But then what happened was we got things like crystal meth and ice and all of a sudden, these people are literally walking in a, along the streets up and awake at the same time as us. Yep. They're out in society. They're angry. They're, they're strong. strong. They're powerful. And obviously, erratic. Are, yep. Erratic, unpredictable, can't be talked to, can't be reasoned yep. with. And that's when I think a lot of people notice that, wow, drugs are on our street. They're walking next to us. They're shopping at the supermarket at the same time as us. Mm-hmm. And it's this time bomb that could explode. ED had the worst violence it had ever experienced. So this new product came in. And everyone wanted it. As I said, people who I'd never knew who would even take drugs were all of a sudden using this drug. Mm -hmm. And then there's people, and I even say now, that the drug dealers that scare me the most are the people who don't actually use. Oh, yeah. That's a a smart drug dealer. Well, I think that's the worst kind because they're not even running from their own addictions and their need. It's actually just manipulation and greed. Yeah, it is. Which scares the hell out of me. Okay. So we're coming towards this episode's ending, folks, where – it's been heavy, it's been dark, and we're going to come on to the healing in part two. But I want to talk about, Crystal, you know, the reality that you'd lost everything. I did. That this glamorous dress night that you had only a short few years before. Well, they were sold for drugs. This was dissolved. You'd lost me. Yeah. You'd lost a lot of your friends. I did. You'd lost your moral compass, your moral courage. You'd lost your health. You were actually just a shadow. All of a sudden you were shaving bits off your head and you... You just looked so different. Mm. And I think I, if I had it even walked past you, I probably wouldn't have even recognised you. And so then our family split and this is the reality. And this is where I really want to talk to those out there who are siblings of drug addicts. I know what it feels like to have your parents so distracted by the drug addict person. I know what it feels like to have someone that was in your life every day and all of a sudden you can't be near them because they are dangerous, unpredictable, or because you're hurt or you don't trust them, and so you just choose to walk away. But they still exist, and you know they're still out there, and there's this guilt of should I go fire them, should I go help them? But as Crystal has just said, they are gone. They are so far and rude for the person you knew. And this is a grief that one our mum used to have as well was that but she looks like her and she talks like her. And I remember the police saying after you'd committed another crime that she was interviewed about, 
was like, I know it looks like her, I know it sounds like her, but she's gone. But I always believe that you are still in there. And I, I feel that every action that you did, although you would say it was for the drugs, I still feel like it was a little girl just trying to gain love, but she was trying to get it from the wrong place. Yeah. Because that was the only place she could get it from yeah. now because she'd yeah. hurt every other bridge. Yeah. So I still see beyond the grotesque action of your behaviour to still see just a little girl who's looking for love and safety. And unfortunately, because every other bridge had been burnt, you only had one other group to get that from. And so, again, in the confusion of what's safe, what's predictable brain behaviour, you found these to be your new leaders and your new role models. What did it feel like when you realised you had no one else? Did you care or were you like, or did you actually just think, like, oh, my family are all idiots, they don't know what they're talking about, they're all stuck up, they yep, that was the drug tied to my coping mechanism. So, yes, that 100%. But then there'll be times when I would be coming down or something again, I'd be lying in my bed and the reality of it would hit that I'm alone, that I don't have my family, that I'm not around for your son's first, second, third, fourth, fifth year of life. Mm. When we were so close, that that would sneak in. And then like those things did sneak in, then you just make them go away with taking something else. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Or on those days that were really bad, I'd go sleep at the grave cemetery mm. and sleep with Dad. So in this time, folks, also our father has passed away, which is kind of St. Crystal on possibly the worst chapter of her life because she has grief as well as shame, as well as regret, as, as well as guilt, guilt, all of these things. So you have like a brain that is, it's gone offline. It just has gone offline and it's now full survival mode, which is back to our primalist self, yeah. which is just getting through every day. Yeah. It's not about building wealth. It's not about a five-year plan. It's nothing. It's just surviving. And when someone's at that track in their life, in that darkest phase, the amount of shit that you have to go through to not drown mm-hmm. and the shit you'll do to not drown is yes. uncomprehensible yeah. Yeah. to the normal person. Yeah. So then you committed some crimes. Did a few. Yeah. Yeah. And then the police caught up with you. Eventually the police caught up with you uh-huh. and an intervention was caused in that if you don't want to go to prison, you need to live by our standards. But then I wanted to go to prison because I'm like, wow, there's no drugs in prison. Naive me, of course. So this is you starting to realise that you don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. Okay. So I know for a while that I didn't want to do this anymore, but I had no control over it. Mm-hmm. I had no control of stopping it. I had no I had moved house to house to house. I'd been homeless. They always found me. Near-death experiences. Yeah, they always found me and with a hit. Even when I started getting clean and like years down the track and I had had my daughter, they were leaving stuff in my letterboxes, designer products by my front door, which I still have. Thank you. But they were leaving loaded fits, which are needles, Mm -hmm. in my letterbox just come back kind of stuff mm-hmm. and I was in a better area then so I had a lot of people watching my house neighbors and that so they weren't coming to the house the door causing drama but they were just leaving little temptations yeah yeah, yeah. because I made them a lot of money mm. when I was sick I made them a lot of money and they wanted that back so yeah the darkness kind of followed me for a while and well this is all just the tip <laughs> of the iceberg folks so we're going to call this a tip of the needle, but that'd be no, bad. No, that would be bad. 
Sorry. We are not Dark humour, dark humour. Yes. We're going to leave it at this. This is the end of part one. Next episode is all about the healing and how you can help your family member come back to it. We're going to talk on how you can help your children identify predators yes. and bad friends. Yes. So next, you've gone on the roller coaster. You might have heard some shit you didn't realise happened. You might have. You might even be curious. You might even be curious to all in this life and you can live vicariously through someone else. Like the brain is fascinating at what we attempted by. Don't want to live vicariously through me. No. No. So next episode, part two, we're going to do for you and it is going to be about the healing, the recovery, the support and where you can get it from. Beautiful. Stay tuned. Thank you, Crystal. Thanks for having me. And that's all for today, folks. As always, thank you for letting me your ears and your hearts. I feel so grateful and blessed to be able to share these stories with you and bring us together as a community. This is Gail Wilson, and this is Soul Care Bendigo's podcast, Naked. Don't forget to follow and subscribe so that you get notifications on the next episode as it lands. Take care and just be kind to yourself.